finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things. I don't know how many more ways I'm going to come up to say uh, that we do a comic, and then we do a novella, and then we do a comic, and then we do a novella twice a month, every month, until... I don't know, podcasting is made illegal by President Logan Paul in the year 2065. Okay. Uh, so we read a comic. This is our comic episode for February. But it's also a literary episode. Yeah, sort of. It is a comic by a writer who we have talked about but never ex- like specifically covered a work by before on this podcast. Why don't you tell people what exactly it was that we read? So we read Destroyer, Victor Laval's Destroyer, and it's a six-issue story that becomes a graphic novel, and it is a reimagining, a retelling, a sequel. It's a sequel. I think sequel is probably the best term for it. To Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So what Laval did is he took the story of Frankenstein, he reimagined it in modern society, and he wrote a comic that speaks about the story, but also about the cultural events that are happening right now in our society. Yeah, so the comic is uh, written by Laval, obviously. In 2017. The art is by Dietrich Smith. The colors are by Joanna LaFuente. It's lettered by Jim Campbell. The covers are all by Michaela Dawn. And then uh, the character designs are credited to Dan Mora, who drew Klaus. Oh, okay. And and Dietrich Smith. And before we get into the comic, and I get on a soapbox a little bit here. So the way that this comic is credited, first off, the title is is rendered as Victor Laval's Destroyer, and he is credited in in the uh, the collected edition at least. It goes written by Victor Laval, illustrated by Dietrich Smith, and I uh, I get it on like a pragmatic level why it's like this, like. This book is being sold on Laval's notoriety. That's why his name is above the title. That's why it's rendered the way that you would a, a like a book rather than a comic, like the the written and illustrated by. But it really bugs me every time a an artist on a comic is credited as an illustrator because in my mind illustrations are things that could be removed from a work and it would still function like you can like the difference between uh art by and illustrations by are you could read a plain text version of an illustrated book and still largely get it that's not how comics work it's more of a collaboration than there i think there is between an author and an illustrator and i mean the history of comics in a lot of ways is the history of artists getting shit on and I wish we could push back by against that a little bit. I was seeing something recently because uh, I think it was DC Comics put out all of these uh, original graphic novels that were designed to sort of break into the YA market okay. with their characters and they're all all of those books are designed to look like YA novels and they're credited like YA novels. And so they are also very writer-forward. And I remember seeing, I think it was in response to that, someone saying that they wished that the way it worked was the 
artists and the writer were credited on the cover like co-authors, and then their specific roles were elucidated inside the book, Well, which I think would be a nice touch. You won't get an argument from me because I really, I agree with you. I think that the artwork and the writing in a comic work together equally to create the story. And I think you're right. I think that the artist should not be separated because they're not making, like you said, an illustrated version of a novel. Mm -hmm. They're creating that work together. And the artwork pushes the story along. Yeah. Because even if you just had, like you said, the text of Destroyer, without seeing the imagery, which is important, especially in a story like this, because Frankenstein is a very sort of graphical story and you need to imagine it in Mm -hmm. your mind, the story couldn't be told without the illustrations. And I think you're right. But I think it's kind of like the same thing with like Sandman and like Swamp Thing. It's like Neil Gaiman, Sandman, Alan Moore, Swamp Thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like comics are... I I don't know why... It's very... Okay, I do know why. But I do think it's very strange that comics that are such a visual medium in which the the artist's work is so much more literally visible than the writer's work, why the conversation and marketing around comics has been so writer-forward. I, I do, like, I think it's kind of a fruit-of-the-poison-tree thing. Like, we, we might be able to lay the blame for this at, at our old buddy Stan Lee's feet. But you know what I but think? But it's, like, strange that, that we haven't shaken that attitude. I think it's... But I think it should also be noted that, yes, this is one of those sort of prestige comics where they're touting a famous author. Yeah. But I think if you think about the broad scope, like you were saying about Stan Lee, there was a period that even when you were a comic book writer, your name wasn't known. So I think it's starting to make progress where people are getting acknowledged for the work that they do. Mm -hmm. So maybe like they're not quite there with the illustrators, but they're getting there. Sure. I mean, there are, well, you know it, there are illustrators that when they work on comics, the comics themselves become highly anticipated just because of the artwork. So there are artists working that are getting that level of prestige based on their body of work in comic books, and that's a start for the acknowledgement. Sure, sure. I mean, we've definitely gone a long way. I mean, in our last comics episode, I mentioned that, uh, Carl Barks was known for a long time simply as the good duck artist because he didn't even get any credits on his work. And so obviously we're pretty far away from that. And I'm not like, I'm not trying to tear this book down. I'm not trying to tear into Laval or even the publisher. Like I said, I understand why this book is credited that way. I just wanted to point it out that it's a thing that kind of bugs me. And I hope we see less credits structured like this as we move into the future. I think one of the things that people can do to to move this along is when they talk about comics, like you do, to be clear and to make sure that you equally mention the writer and the illustrator, the artist. Sure, yeah. Or however they want to be designated. I mean, yeah, well, you know, the honest thought is the point. I have no idea if this, if this isn't how, that this isn't how Laval and Dietrich Smith worked out how they wanted the credits to work. I, I have no idea. Well, let's talk a little bit about the studio that produced it because it's a it's a publishing house that we haven't read something from Boom Studios. I, did we not? I thought Klaus was Boom. Oh, was it? I think this is our second Boom comic, actually. 
So they may be, as a smaller publisher, trying to cash more into the prestige of Victor Laval. Because, I mean, at this point that this came out, this was right at the height of his big novel currently at the time, The Changeling, which became a huge bestseller and, and, you know, acclaimed success. And they're making a movie. So, I mean, I think the time that Destroyer came out, they were trying to hit on that sort of current popular fame that Victor Laval had. Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely the case. Yeah, Boom is a, they're smaller. They're they're they've been up and coming for a little while now. But uh Yeah, they've they've had some pretty high profile books. They ever so they got Victor Laval to write something for them. They put out Klaus, which, you know, Graham Morrison is one of the most famous and successful comics writers of all time. They do a lot of um I don't know if it's still like this, but for a while they were had a real push to do all ages comics. I used to lot. I used to get a lot of boom stuff and share it with my younger cousin when she was younger. Yeah. Um. And now she's old, and I feel like I'm I'm ancient. But yeah, boom's pretty cool, and I think it's cool that they put this book out. I think especially because by the time you get to the end of this story, it's pretty uh pretty bold in some of the proclamations that it's making, like. It's I I could easily see even though he is a, a well known and acclaimed writer I could easily see a publisher getting this script and being like nope no thanks I won't touch it <laughs> but we'll talk about that when we get into the plot but let's talk a little bit about Victor Laval and his career uh, so sure. he's an American writer obviously and just like John Barth one of my favorite things mm-hmm. he's an active working writer. And he's also a professor who teaches creative writing. Mm -hmm. So his career started. He wrote a lot of books about, I guess, his cultural background. And a lot of his books were literary novels that dealt with um, people of color and sort of the cultural, how people treated immigrants and different types of cultural identities in society. And then I guess some point in the late 90s, early 2000s, he started to blend a little bit of science fiction and fantasy into his work. And he started to sort of make these sort of almost um, kind of like magical realism stories. And then he published this short novella, The Ballad of Black Tom. Which we mentioned a bunch on this. Right, which was sort of... On this show. Sort of out of the style that he was writing and it became almost like his breakout novel. So his other novels were critically acclaimed, but they weren't bestsellers. Mm -hmm. So then he publishes the ballad of black Tom and you know, it becomes this sort of conversation starter about HP Lovecraft and the problematic views that he had. And it became this huge phenomenon, won a lot of awards and sort of really put him up into this sort of, you know, awareness of, like, science fiction and fantasy. And then he goes on to publish a full-length novel, The Changeling, which became a huge bestseller. Yeah, The Ballad of Black Tom uh, rules. And it's, it's so good. But I, it makes sense. I didn't really know a ton of his background. and hadn't read anything he'd written before that. But it makes a lot of sense what you're saying because you could very easily strip out or deliteralize the occult and Lovecraftian elements of the Ballad of Black Tom, and it would be a pretty straightforward, like, social novel in the style of, like, a, like a Upton Sinclair or something like that. 
Right? Is that the right guy? Yeah. I, Who's the jungle dude? Yeah, Upton Sinclair. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying, though, right? A lot of his early work reminded me and was sort of like, um, almost like Juno Diaz, where it's sort of a blend of like pop culture and, you know, sort of like a memoir almost, where you talk about your own experience. And and so those novels are really well written Mm. and they're engaging, but they really don't have that sort of mass bestseller appeal, like something that's a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel would have. Mm -hmm. So I think he's a really interesting writer because he talks a lot about his personal experiences and his culture and his family life and the complicated relationship that he has with American culture. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, I also really think one of the underrated elements of his writing that I've noticed in... The Battle of Black Tom and the Changeling even a little bit here in Destroyer is the way he incorporates the kind of these kind of seldom seen moments from like modern American urban history. Yeah, I mean he talks a lot about like religion and culture and white privilege and upper class experience versus, you know, middle class or working class experiences. And I think it it's sort of he he has taken what was once considered sort of this, you know, H.P. Lovecraft has a lot of problems. Well, oh, I wanted to shout out. He has, The Ballad of Black Time has the greatest dedication of all oh, yes. time, which is to H.P. Lovecraft with all my conflicted feelings, which is could have just, like, that that dedication could basically stand in for, like, 20% of this podcast. Yeah, and I think he really, I mean, his, I think he's really honest and he's really sort of, um, he has a lot of integrity, and he's really sort of um, genuine. Like, if you follow him on Twitter, he talks a lot about, like, his life and what influences him. And I thought it was interesting when I was watching the Watchmen TV series, mm-hmm. he was tweeting about the TV series and his, like, interest in it. And I thought that was a really good connection because you sort of got a different opinion about what you were saying. I, that makes sense, though, because I feel like there's a lot of the appeal, what end, surprisingly ended up being the appeal of that Watchmen show is a lot of what's appealing about his work. Like, yeah. I feel like there's a a, a, um, a unity of point of view between those things. I think what really in, sort of got me about Watchmen, and then sort of same thing with Destroyer, is a lot of what both of those pieces are about is about how the police Mm -hmm. treat the people that they're supposed to be protecting and serving yeah and this is like a political like firestorm right now there's a lot and especially in 2017 it was very relevant there's a lot of cultural discussion about the role of police in society and in fact, if you're kind of one of those people where you're supporting the police and you're kind of like this blue life matters things, Ugh. you're going to be really insulted by this story. Yeah, I also I have this this feeling that this story is going to be one of those ones where uh, it's going to be depressingly relevant for a long time. Yeah, and I, feel I look like, forward to reading this several years from now and being bummed out by how relevant it still is. But I think like it's. It speaks a lot about, you know, it's like, it's about like the African-American experience Mm -hmm. and dealing with culture, but it's also about, if you think about it, it's about the sort of 
this overstepping boundary of the government. And yeah. I think that's relevant to a lot of people, not just people of color. And I think that that's kind of what this story addresses. I mean, I think one of the, the big thesis statements of this work, and we'll get to it when it actually comes up in the plot, is the drawing a parallel between the way the government exerts unilateral control over the planet and its resources and the way the police force exerts unilateral control over the bodies and lives of you know people of color and people in in oppressed or marginalized communities well that's what i think i mean i, I mean if you're if you're a leftist you can relate to what's going on with yeah. the police interference and this sort of all kinds of stuff but let's talk about oh, so before we get into it this is also a bram stoker award winner is it 2018 or 2019 it wins best graphic not probably 2019 i think it's I think it's 2018 because I think this came out in 2017. Right. So then when it's kind of aggregated, it becomes a graphic novel and it wins that award. But let's talk about Frankenstein. Sure. So Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley. It's considered the first science fiction novel. It was published in 1818. And I think it's interesting that the claim to fame of the first science fiction novel is written by a female author. Because once you get into later science fiction, it's really a male-dominated field. So the story of Frank, the novel is called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, which becomes important in the actual story and becomes important in Destroyer. So it's the story of Victor Frankenstein, who is a scientist who creates a man. Out of dead body parts. Out of dead body parts. And he reanimates it. And then the monster, the creature, the monster, him, it, doesn't really have a name, but a lot of people say that his name is Adam. Mm -hmm. And it's written as a frame story. So the whole story is, is the conversation between Captain Walton and his letters that he writes to his sister. And within that sort of very Victorian style of a frame-up novel, yeah, we've the story about of that. Frankenstein is told. So one of the things that really makes this interesting, and it, and it, other than the iconic character of the creature, is that this is one of the first stories where the monster itself, he has his own narrative. Mm -hmm. So you get to sort of experience the story from his point of view instead of just the point of view of his creator and the people who deal with him. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, you read Dracula... And that's really never told at all from Dracula's perspective. So, talk. tell me a little bit about Prometheus, because as you know, I am very, very much confused by Greek mythology. So we said that we, did you mention that the, the subtitle or yes. alternate title is the modern Prometheus? Uh, so Prometheus is a titan, which are these sort of pre- I mean, they they were around before the gods. The gods were born from the Titans, and then one of the biggest, one of the, the most you know famous stories in Greek mythology is the Titanomachy, which is the story of the gods' war against the Titans. But Prometheus is famous for stealing fire from the gods to give to humanity, and then being punished by having uh, his body chained to a rock and his liver eaten out by an eagle every day. And then eventually, he is freed from his imprisonment by Hercules and the Twelve Labors. And so the idea with the modern Prometheus is, I think, that Victor Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. He steals the fire of life from the gods and creates a creature. And then rather than being punished by Zeus, he's punished by himself. 
and by his creation to some extent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I think one of the things to keep in mind, and one of the reasons why I think that Frankenstein, the novel, became very important and very relevant and continues to be, is that it is a story about technology and the cultural acceptance of scientific innovation. And I think that becomes a theme that becomes important throughout the science fiction genre. And you can see the start of that right here. Because like in the story, a lot of what Frankenstein is doing is he's using current medical technology at the time. Mm -hmm. So those things are happening and they could be, they're being used by scientists and doctors at the time, but Shelley takes it to the next extreme and she sort of cashes in on that fear that the society has about these scientific innovations and breakthroughs because you know they're talking about like veins and circulation and that kind of stuff is new and unexpected and a lot of people don't understand how it works and I think that's when she makes Frankenstein use that technology to create his monster then I think that she's sort of playing into that fear of modern innovation and technology, which kind of is still going on today. Like last time we talked about um, recursion, the, mm-hmm. the what Blake Crouch's novel and how he cashes in on that fear that modern society has about memory loss and about becoming sort of demented or having dementia and these sort of memory diseases that are becoming more prevalent in our society. She does the same thing. And I think that's what keeps it relevant. Yeah, and I think it's that with that read in mind, I think it's really telling that in Destroyer, the technology that is used to create this new creation that is the focus of the book, of the story is like nanobots and the digitization of, of mind and memory, which are, are things people are worried about now. Uh, but I, I think there are lots of reads of Frankenstein that aren't even that aren't about technology at all. I think you can easily read the the original Frankenstein as a, a critique of masculinity. The doctor is a masculine figure who tries to create life without any sort of touch of of the feminine or femininity, and his creation destroys him, and he's destroyed by the act of creation. And I think that reading makes a lot of sense if you think about the context in which the very literal immediate context in which Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Which is hanging out with uh, Byron and Shell and you know Percy Shell. Wait, what's that guy's name? Hanging out with Byron and Shelley. It's like just two pompous dudes who are obsessed with their own creations, their own poetry. And so it's like I'm going to write this story where a dude creates a thing and it sucks ass. Well, I think it's also important to note that Mary Shelley's mother is. Mary Wollstonecraft, the early feminist writer. Mm -hmm. So she probably did have exposure to those kinds of provocative thoughts. Yeah. Well, then, and then Shelley also wrote, um, what's her other, her other story is like The Last Man, right? Right. Like she's got, clearly that's something that was on her mind is like these ideas and ideals of masculinity and what exactly they mean in the world. But I think it's interesting because. Frankenstein is one of those iconic, he, as Dr. Frankenstein himself, is an iconic character. Sure. But even freed from the construct of the story, the creature is even more popular in pop culture than the novel and Frankenstein. 
I mean, there's... I mean, we see it in so many manifestations. Sure, sure. I mean, and then there's, like, all sorts of, like... I mean, you could argue that almost every Marvel superhero is some sort of reinterpretation of Frankenstein. Like, the Thing is Frankenstein, the Hulk is Frankenstein, arguably Spider-Man is Frankenstein. Like, they're all... They're all that. I Also, in addition to spawning two iconic characters in the novel itself... The uh, the films also spawn two more iconic characters in The Bride of Frankenstein and Igor. Right, right. Now, as we go through this story, we'll see some of the characters are there in new and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So, so why don't we get started on that? Sure. So, uh, this comic has a fucking awesome opening. Oh yeah, I love it. Which is the the monster sitting on a throne of ice, several stories up above the Antarctic. He sees a whale and drops into the ocean, and then a Japanese whaling ship starts slaughtering the whales above him, and the blood is like raining down on him in the ocean. So he hops up onto the ship, punches directly through one of the whaler's chests, and then blows the ship up while he's on it and swims towards the lake. Um, like they're like a sea shepherd stand-in, right? Yes. ship that's been observing the whalers. He he swims over and starts interacting with them, and then it turns out that the captain of that ship is an ex-military guy, and he calls in and quotes, I believe he quotes the novel Frankenstein to some unseen a figure of authority to alert them that the monster has returned. I guess the impression we're supposed to get is this. I don't know if this guy's just connected to the government, so he just knows what, what's up, or if he is stationed on this ship specifically undercover to watch to see if the monster ever shows back up again. Because, as we know from the novel, the mon- the creature's last—they uh, call him the creation. That's the right. term they use from the creation's last known whereabouts are in the Arctic Circle. So the premise of the of this destroyer is that. Victor Frankenstein was a real scientist, mm-hmm. and he created the creature, the creation. And so what happened in the novel happened in real life. And then fast forward to the future, there's this secret society that is searching for the creature specifically. Well, they're searching for the secret to immortality, and they view Victor Frankenstein's research and his creation as being the ultimate key to unlocking this desire that they have. So it's hard to tell from the beginning if the creature is living in the Antarctic. And I do mention this sort of a little bit when there's a scene in the first issue where one of the scientists is using an iPad to catch the creature up on what's been happening in society. So the premise is is that these global climate changes and this environmental condition that we're dealing with now has caused the creature to leave Antarctica. Yeah. So that's what's going on. So he gets aboard this ship, and he is pretty much the most extreme eco-terrorist that you could have because he's just... He goes through numerous situations where he's just fighting for these... for different causes. Well, is he, or is he just a destroyer? Yes. So when the the one of the activists is catching him up on the iPad, he eventually sees a video that references a Dr. Josephine Baker who's working in Montana. Right. And it calls her a modern day Frankenstein. Uh and 
this concerns him. He does not like that idea. He still very much hates his creator and wishes to destroy him. And then he ends up uh, when the they see the captain turns on him. He ends up destroying the ship and crashing it into a dock in another really awesome sequence. This book's very big, very loud, very actiony, very comic booky. I was really interested in seeing you know how Lavelle was going to adapt to the medium of comic books, and I think sometimes like. Um, the most, the best example I can think of is uh, Tenahasi Coates. He's got a, he's been writing Black Panther, and the first couple issues of his Black Panther comics are very heavily written, very wordy, very mannered, and I was wondering if Lavelle was going to do the same thing or not. And Lavelle's take is just to fully dive into the milieu of the like action comic this book is very big like i said it's very unsubtle characters really like just explode off the page and do talk in like big speeches it reminds me of like 80s comics more than anything of like like the mark ruinwald um captain america run where it's like here's a guy his name is literally flag smasher and he's gonna shout a speech about anarchism at captain america while they have a fight on the steps of the u.n like, that, that's the feel that this is going for, and I love it. Because I've long said that the real value of, like, superhero comics, and more broadly, they sort of, like, you know, big four-color pulp comics, is that they can take these ideas and conflicts that exist in the real world and blow them up to the point where we can process them by watching characters that represent the sides of the conflict, uh, you know, literally punching each other and throwing, like, fireballs and shooting lasers out of their eyes at each other and this is very much doing that well i think this is what exactly what you were saying in the beginning of the podcast the illustrations that accompany the text that laval writes help push the story and add a component an extra depth of the story and i think that's really one of the successes of this series yeah, I don't think I've ever read anything that Dietrich Smith has drawn before, but I, I liked his work on this a lot. It's very straightforward. It's almost even more, like I said when we were reading Klaus, like this is maybe the most straightforward and traditional uh, comic art that we've read. Uh, and this, I think, is even more so than that. There's only like a couple of pages in this that kind of like throw the the this traditional panel grid out the window. The one where he's getting caught up on the uh, iPad is sort of like that, where it's a big... Uh, profile of the creation's face and then all the videos he's watching are like are shooting out of his head like rays of sunlight yeah but it's a, i think it works really well he does the action really nice like it's all very like clear and impactful i think it's interesting to note that dr baker she's the mother she's a doctor she's a genius she's very you know she creates all this interesting technology and she's also one of the last living relatives of Victor Frankenstein. Is that weird? Is that true? Yeah, that's what it says in this story. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the solicitations, but I don't ever remember it coming up in the... I know she has his journal, which I guess would right. make sense if she is related to him. Uh, but I, I, don't rem, I don't remember in the story them ever talking about that too directly. It's less important than the solicitations and like uh, summary and stuff would have you believe. But yeah, so then this uh, this older woman who is the head of the lab in Silver Springs, Maryland, which is the organization that's trying to achieve immortality, 
gets the call that the monster, the creation is back, and she dispatches two agents. Codename, Shelley and Byron. Yeah. To, uh, to go collect Dr. Baker, who has gone, you know, rogue, and has got, is off the grid and uh, off the radar of the lab. And so then we get a, a long sequence of her avoiding them and talking to this disembodied voice that has control over, you know, the various machines she uses, when it becomes clear as it goes that this voice is her son, for some reason. And I don't... By the yeah, by the end of this issue, we learn that her son is dead, and then the issue ends with her resurrecting him with the nanobot technology she has developed using like a bit of like the last piece she needs is something that she gleans out of Victor's journal. Yeah, and I think there's I mean there's one panel where it's very clear that she's melding these sort of um archaic science with the latest technology because there's a she has this sort of um what's the word for this that they live yeah i don't know like one of those big tubes that people are in like the thing that luke is in in uh empire strikes back when he's getting healed like the back of the tank she has like a big person tube that she's growing right the, the, her son's body back But in. then also surrounding the tube, you see these sort of alchemical symbols that are floating around. So then you realize that she's using some of the sort of pseudoscience magical crafting that may have come from the Frankenstein's diaries. Yeah, so the way that the... It's the way that Laval gets around the fact that Victor Frankenstein resurrected a dead body in, like, the 18th century, and people haven't been able to do it yet, is by digging into the idea that Laval... I mean, not Laval. (laughs) Different Victor. Digging into the idea that Frankenstein used alchemy to do it. Like, very literally, he studied alchemical texts. Right. And that he learned some kind of alchemy secret that, when combined with modern science, is what created... uh, Helped him to finalize his creation. I think, though, in the novel, there is a part where when Frankenstein is away at school, he's trying to locate these older texts that are, it's not implied that they're alchemical texts, but it's implied in the novel that they're older medical texts that he is looking for. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So Dr. Baker's son is Akai. He's, uh, I guess he ends up being, he's like a middle school student. He's a young boy. He's not quite in high school. I think he's in seventh grade. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we learn that something happened to her son. And this has spurned her to do more research and to use Frankenstein's diary to recreate, to bring him back to life. There's also, we get the first, when she's... The, the two agents try to, to find her in a bar, and she evades them and drives home, and she's talking to Akai's, like, digitized mind in her car, and she sort of falls asleep while he drives her home, and we get this flashback of her in the garden with him, and we get, like, for the first indication that, like, Akai is this really, like, sensitive, thoughtful kid, and we get the first indication that Dr. Baker is not that, that there's something else going on with her. Because the flashback is, like, she finds an earthworm and she's explaining to him 
how like they can regenerate and how they like if you just cut them in half, they don't grow into two worms. That's like a myth. And she's like, here, let me show you. And she's about to cut this living worm. And the guy's like, uh, don't do that, please. Well, I think you realize when you learn more of her backstory is that she's not always the most kind person. And I think what's happening is her son brings out her sensitive, caring side, which makes her loss even more profound to her. Yeah. I think she's she's a great character, but she's very much like an archetypal mad scientist. But the most human treatment of that kind of character that I've seen almost ever, maybe ever, I can, only one that I can think of that has... A, a nearing the amount of like humanity and care is like the Batman the animated series depiction of Mr. Freeze. At first I was kind of like Which she honestly has a lot of similarities to. I kind of got this at first I thought it was like this is a comment on women who because of societal obligations can't devote as much time as they want to being a mother because she's a working woman and she and she's kind of a little bit like um I mean I think that's a concern that he is raising in this. Right. Right. That she the reason that something has happened is because she had there's these expectations on her to do these things in her career and different things and something happens and a choice is made and it's the wrong choice and it ends up being sort of cat- catastrophic for her. But then I kind of thought it was almost like a comment on like a career-driven woman, and it was kind of like a slight almost to her. Like, if she wasn't so focused on her career and doing her research, then this might not have happened to her. Yeah, but it's also like, that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be that you take a you take a long day at work and your kid dies. Like, that. that's still not her fault, even if had she done something different. Like, I think the, the coolest thing that Laval does in this whole book is he kind of dares you to dislike Dr. Baker. Yeah, and I f- and it's kind of like the same thing, where you feel like you shouldn't dislike her because she's supposed to be a sympathetic character. But then she makes she continues to make decisions and choices that are bad and hurtful to her family. But it's like he he's using her to, to sort of expose the raw nerves of your lingering prejudices against women against people of color against people that are just angry in general uh i think she's a really well realized character she gets she gets totally wild as the story goes on but i think in the end i i ended up really digging her but i think it's yeah like you said it's about addressing how your anger affects the things that you do. And I think this is a problem for a lot of the characters. It's also sort of about who is allowed to be angry in our society. Right. Yeah, and I think you'll see that because uh, later on you meet her husband Mm -hmm. and Akai's father and and you see sort of the decision and his anger and the decisions that he made and why he made them. And I feel like people... A lot of the characters in the story are forced to make decisions that they don't necessarily want to make because of the pressure that's put on them. And I guess in this part, society is being represented by this lab. Sure. Which is, at this point in this issue, 
looking for Dr. Baker. So Byron and Shelley are agents and they're looking for Dr. Baker to bring her back to the lab. We realized at some point she worked for the lab. When she became pregnant, she left the lab and the director wants her back because they're right at the point where they think they're going to capture the creation. Yeah. Uh, and so in the next issue, we get more of uh, the agents fumbling to find Baker. She eventually sort of lures them into a trap in her lab. Before that happens, we get um, a flashback of the monster being attacked throughout the ages by people who don't understand him. He ends up in the present day in Mexico, walking towards the border where he people gather around him, sort of expecting some sort of help and protection from him because he's such a powerful figure and he seems to sort of appear miraculously out of nowhere. And then when he gets to the wall, he tears it down, but without any thought for the people around him and in his blind destruction, he basically kills all the people that he's working with and then he kills a bunch of like you know, gung-ho, vigilante, border-patrolling... Patriots, in quotation marks. Yeah, you know what the kind of guys we're talking about. Trump voters. He mm-hmm. he beats up and, and kills a bunch of those guys. And it's like this idea that, like, the, he's just a... He is just a destroyer. Like, whether or not his destruction lines up with something that you consider just doesn't make him into a force for justice. He is... He's just a destroyer. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because he seems to care more for animals than he cares for people. No, a lot of people feel that way. Uh, And then in the lab, the the agents attack Dr. Baker and she has like this clear bulletproof cloak on that saves her. And then Akai, who is like now fully formed, uses his nanobots to disassemble their guns. Disassemble their guns. Yeah, and I think this is when you realize that one of the reasons why the lab wants her is because they re- they now know that she has perfected the research that she was doing while she was working with them and the research that they want. Is this the issue where they had the thing about the chickens? No. Okay. That's not for a little bit. Uh, yeah, so, so you get introduced to Akai and you see him. And I think it's interesting to note that he is more human looking than the creation. Yeah, he's got like, I mean, he's still stitched together, but he looks like a person that's stitched together. Like the creation doesn't have like a nose and like, he's more obviously piecemeal, but Akai does have like a part of his like arm is all like, it looks like carbon fiber. Yeah, and you, I guess you can see that she's using modern material she's using i guess she explains that the nanobots are keeping him together but then they're also learning about him so that they can replace the parts that fail yeah so eventually at some point he's going to become a full robot and less of like a hybrid human robot yeah well the the the, he's still decaying well what is eventually explained is he's still decaying the nanobots are repairing the decay as it happens, and eventually they will get so smart that they'll be repairing faster than the decay, and he'll just become, I guess, a human mind animating a nanobot swarm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then the next issue, we get more of a flashback setting up what happened to him. He was going to a Little League game, and he was allowed to walk to and from the game 
by himself because his mom was going to be busy with some work stuff. Uh, we don't see the end result of that. But then when we get cut back to the present in the lab, we get the best joke in the in the series, I think. Which is the agents are super impressed by Akai and uh, they start touching him. And then the one guy goes, the texture is so interesting. And she's like, stop touching my son. <laughs> and then it's like, obviously, you know, it's a play on, on people touching white people wanting to touch black people's hair. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> right? Like, I, I think that's the joke here. I thought that was really funny. Uh, and, you know, like, we immediately get this thing, uh, this interplay where it's like, Akai is much more gentle and merciful than his mom is. Baker just kind of wants to kill these dudes. Well, he's sort of like, an, he's like the perfect merger of Dr. Baker and her husband. Yeah, well, we'll see later. Yeah, the 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 kinds of things that, that her husband had to do and how much he is like his son. But it's interesting because Percy and Shelley, even though they work for the lab, they really seem to admire Dr. Baker and they're fascinated by the work that she's doing. They contemplate switching sides to just defect to join her. The monster frees a bunch of pigs from a slaughterhouse, but then he knocks down the slaughterhouse and ends up killing all the pigs anyway. And he looks shocked and sad when that happens. Poor guy. Yeah, because he's kind Well, I think what's driving him at this point, he's more animal than man at this point. He is looking for his creator to get his revenge on him. Yeah. So. Uh, we get more flashback. We find out that, uh, you know... Dr. Baker was, like, she got to work for the the laboratory with the promise that, like, they wouldn't hamper her in any way and she'd be allowed to explore her ambitions completely. But then they fired her when she became pregnant and she went to the University of Chicago and she had her kid and then he died. Uh, and then she tells this story about this woman whose husband was uh, killed in their neighborhood and how angry this person was and we start to get these themes of like you know dr baker is really angry but our society has this these double standards where white male anger is acceptable but women who are angry and black people and people of color who are angry and especially black women who are angry are sort of looked down upon and condescended to and their anger is delegitimized and that becomes like a big sticking point for Dr. Baker as the story goes on. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because like the lab, which is trying to sort of catch the cre the creature, is kind of like, well, he's going to destroy stuff because that's what he does. Like that's acceptable. Like he he's a creature and he's going to mess things up and we just have to deal with it. But when they're dealing with Dr. Baker, she's a horrible, you know angry person that has to be neutralized yeah so i mean that's kind of the same thing yeah like the creature's sort of this avatar for white male anger and he's given even though he is objectively worse than dr baker i mean at least for most of the story he is given also, so much more leeway i think it's also sort of a comment too about women in scientific research where they're mm. also being sort of marginalized and there's a history of, like, the women's contribution to scientific advancements oh, being dismissed. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's kind of like, I mean, it's even the same way here. I mean, Dr. Baker has created more successfully 
a creature mm-hmm. than Victor Frankenstein, but the whole thing is about Frankenstein and Frankenstein's creature and trying to find his his journal and recreating his research. When it's like, naturally, the easiest solution is to work with Dr. Baker and use her research because she's far more successful at doing the work than Victor Frankenstein was. Yeah, sure. I mean, he kind of... He kind of, by scraps and luck, created a creature. Mm. And she used technology and her advanced scientific training to create a creature. So Frankenstein's monster, you'd have to be lucky to recreate that monster. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Baker's research, you can replicate that as many times as you want. Sure, sure. Uh, So she... uh, Also, at this point, Dr. Baker sort of gives her perspective... On the story of Frankenstein, which is that she believes she offers up this possibility that instead of being motivated by arrogance and a desire to be or surpass God uh, or just blind scientific curiosity, Victor Frankenstein may have been motivated by a desire to conquer the boundary between life and death out of love because he lost his mother. Right. And so she sort of. But he doesn't create his mother. No, no, but he creates a man. Yeah, but he doesn't have access. No, but he's the idea is that like this is step one to defeating death. I think the 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 difference between Victor Frankenstein and Doctor Baker is that I think Frankenstein's thing is more that he has a Doctor Baker has a problem with the fact that her son dies. It seems like Victor Frankenstein had a problem with the fact that anyone can die. Right. Right. So. That issue ends with Frankenstein's creature breaching Dr. Baker's lab, her and, underground hidden lab. Yeah, and tearing and, one of the agents in half. Yes. And also at the same time, the la- the lab has been threatening to dispatch something called the Bride to clean up this problem that has arisen because of Dr. Baker detaining the agents. And that thing gets dropped out of a drone just before... Uh, the creation shows up and tears the agent apart. So then issue four starts, and this is sort of the backstory. And I don't know what the husband's name is. I I think his name is Parker. His codename is Pliers. Pliers. Okay. Because he has um, an artificial hand. Right. That's like a metal claw. And so he works at the lab, and there's this sort of scene that takes place in the cafeteria over many years. And this is where I was saying where you meet Dr. Baker and you realize she's not the most loving social person that you meet because she's by herself and she's doing her research. She's very focused. Mm -hmm. And this man who's gentle and kind and caring comes into her space and they form a relationship. Yeah. And this is sort of where he sort of humanizes her a little bit and makes her care about more than just her research. Sure. And then he shows up. I guess he has a backstory that we don't really know about because he sort of shows up and he looks almost like he's a security guard. But as time goes by, you realize that he's higher ranking than that. And he already has a missing hand, so you don't know what He's, he's like some sort of military officer, and he, he ran, like, operations for the lab or whatever sort of broader uh, secret government organization the lab is part of. Uh, but yeah, he's like a military guy. And then the uh, the creature starts going on a ramp. The creation starts going on a rampage, and 
Dr. Baker's lab and Akai and the creature are fighting, but Akai doesn't want to hurt the creature, so he's just kind of ne- trying to neutralize all the destruction that the creature's making. You know, the whole thing becomes like, you know, this big, you know, visual metaphor with Akai trying to... Like, the idea is destroyer, right, could refer to any number of characters from this. Well, think- but the idea is like, Akai and the creation are both destroyers, but the creation's destruction is just destruction. Akai, because of his nanobots being able to break down and rebuild things... He destroys to then recreate. I think the term to... destroyer is almost like the term monster in the original story. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, it's like, the, one of the themes of the original story is, who is the monster? Is it the actual physical monster that's created that goes on a rampage in the village? Or is it the man who created this abomination? And I think it's the same thing. The destroyer becomes that sort of flip term as well. Because who's the destroyer? Is it the creature? Is it Akai? Is it Dr. Baker? Is it the lab? Is mm-hmm. it the bride? Because there's a lot of people who, who characters who can become that manifestation of destruction. Yeah. We get another flashback uh, with Baker talking, like her last conversation with the... Uh, the woman, I can't, I, I don't know if she I has I think she's name. just called the director. The, yeah, the director of the lab, where she's basically reveals that her thing is, she's aware of the impending climate apocalypse, and she is this representation of, like, the status quo of, like, capitalism and this and feudalism to a certain extent, and she's like, the history of humanity is the history of, like, a upper class being served by an underclass, but pretty soon... The planet will become unsustainable to have enough people for there to be a viable servant class. So what if we used your nanobots to essentially replace all the workers with nanobots and then it could just be the upper class and their nanobot servants on this planet that would then, you know, that would be the future of humanity. And... Before she can even really object to it, Dr. Baker reveals that she's pregnant and the director basically lets her go because she sees that as a violation of her commitment to the cause. Right. And then I think this is one of the things that shows you where her husband is sort of, he makes the ultimate sacrifice in his mind because he is forced to choose between leaving with Dr. Baker while she's pregnant and and having his family but the director puts him in this sort of untainable position where she says, if you leave, we're going to hunt her down. But if you stay, she'll be safe. It's almost more insidious than that. So, so we get like these two scenes. We get her leaving and it looks like Pliers is choosing the lab over her. And then we get the scene of him with the director. And what she actually says is, as long as you remain with me, serve me, they will not be harmed. You have my word. She's not even really saying we will hurt them, but she's she's saying the only way you'll know we won't hurt them is if you stay here. Right. And then also, and then to further insult him, she forces him to be involved in the bride project. So what we learn is the bride is an evolving mech that melds with its living pilot. I mean, so she essentially steals his face and his humanity and turns him into this mechanical servant for the lab, I guess essentially as punishment for his wife leaving. Yeah, and I think he's almost, he's like a reflection of the Destroyer. Yeah. Because 
he is half human, half robot, but it's flipped. So he's a human that's alive being melded with a robot as opposed to a Kai who is, you know, a dead human who's being resuscitated and brought back to life as a partly as a robot. Yeah, yeah. The last agent gets killed by being trapped in the, like, nanobot tube thing. And then um, Dr. Baker and Akai flee the lab with the bride and the creation coming after them. I like that the bride, I like, the one thing I liked about the bride were the two things. One was the sort of had this, like, stripes on it that was sort of a nod to the traditional look of the bride in the Frankenstein movies, which I thought was interesting. But then also, I think it was interesting because it's like codenamed the bride because they're married now. They marry the human and the robot together. So I think that was like an interesting sort of nod to that. And I thought it was like a cold burn when the creature throws uh, one of the agents into the reanimation tube. And it says no viable, what's it say? Like no viable... No scanning for value, none. Right. Goodbye. And then it destroys them. And then it's like cut. And then there's a full page of the director talking to who you think is Victor Frankenstein. From so the that's flashback. that's the big uh, cliffhanger. It's like, oh, Frankenstein's alive, and he looks like he's like in his twenties still somehow. Yeah, that's weird. And then this the next issue starts with a flashback. Where Dr. Baker is demonstrating like a biological 3D printer where she makes a chicken from scratch, like a live chicken from scratch out of it. But it decays too fast and melts and then it becomes clear that the this Frankenstein is a creation of that thing. And they don't have the technology to keep him, keep him from de- degenerating. But they want to use a Frankenstein copy to calm down the creation when he shows up so that they can then, I guess, capture him and study him. Right, so then they're still... So they're still creating these Frankensteins because they have very small, short shelf lives. So then it cuts back to the bride and Dr. Baker and Akai and the creature. And they're in South Dakota and they're still having this sort of showdown. And then you get a flashback of Pliers before he goes into the suit where he seeks revenge on... The person responsible for his son's death. And this is when we realize... Well, it's the partner of the cop who... So we... we, we This and the next page, we get the full story, which is a, on his way home from the baseball game. He was walking through a neighborhood with his baseball bat, bat slung over his shoulder. And a woman called the cops and said that there was a man with a rifle walking around the neighborhood. And presumably a cop shot him. So Pliers goes up to the partner of that cop who didn't stop him from shooting Akai. I think it's very clear, though. I think this is the thing. It is very clear in the flashback that when the police interact with him, you can clearly see that he is a young boy. He is wearing a baseball outfit, and he has a baseball bat. And I think this is the comment on what's going on with this police brutality and police violence is that... They know the situation and they themselves escalate it to the point where they have to shoot yeah. the suspect. There's no reason why. There was no act of violence going on. And I think that's what sort of is the sort of 
impetus that starts Dr. Baker, obviously, on trying to recreate and bring Nakai back because she feels guilty and she's angry about what happened to him. And then I think also her husband is angry about what happened and the way that he seeks revenge is to directly um, intimidate the police partner. Yeah, so he injects him with some nanobots to paralyze him for a second and then tells him what's up. And then at the end, he's like, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave one nanobot in your system and at any moment I could stop your heart. And he's essentially being like, "Here's you now have to feel in your everyday life the way that... You know, essentially, I mean, a black person has to feel in any area where there are police officers, which is just that some person who I have no power over can at just any point decide, I guess this is when you die. Right. And I think that's the sort of social commentary that Laval is making. And then that leads to my favorite, the full panel pick, the, my favorite illustration of Dr. Baker sitting on this almost like a throne and it's supposed to be inspired by the statue of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And it sort of shows her in, like, her full rage that she's feeling, both against, like, society, against science, against her relationship with her husband, what happened. I mean, just all the components that start this sort of cyclone of her, like, rage that she feels. Well, she basically explains, like, you know, technology is going to advance mechanical beings and and whatever Akai is are going to replace humanity. He's going to be seen as this forerunner for this next step. And they might blame him for whatever happens to humanity. They'll certainly blame her and she's just like I I sort of I welcome the destroyer and I will and I will welcome that title. Yeah, and I think that's says. what it is because she sort of gave birth to this whatever's going to validate what she's feeling and that's Akai. And then we sh- they show you the creature, who now at this point is becoming obsolete, and I think he really knows this. So he shows up at the lab, and he's going through, and he sees the clone of Victor Frankenstein who's trying to pretend to be him. It's very sad. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of like he has this sort of, like, moment where he just sort of looks at him like, oh, here you are, and he's kind of hunched over. And then he becomes, like, the destroyer that he is. He kills the Frankenstein clone, and he kills the Jurassic. Oh, I think it's more complicated than that. So he shows up, and he's clearly <laughs> affected. He looks heartbroken or, like, just, like, shocked when um, the Frankenstein clone says, Welcome home, my son. And there's an insert panel where he sees the earpiece in the clone's ear that they're feeding him the lines to. So he see. I think, had it been real, it would have worked like, this was all he ever really wanted, this validation from his father. They're willing to give him a fake version of that validation in order to manipulate him. And he sees through the ruse and destroys them. Why do comic books always have to have this character? Every character has a complicated relationship with their father. That's, yeah. No, I, I believe I, I once said we're all Frankenstein's monster. We all want to strangle our dads. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that's, that's a big thing. I mean, comic books are very often... Written by men, they were, they are overwhelmingly marketed towards men, and every man has a complicated relationship with their father. I mean, there's even a part in here where a guy every person has a complicated relationship with their father talks to the bride and realizes the bride is his father, and they have a conversation. Yeah, that's the start of the next issue. Is everybody shows up at the ruins of the lab? 
And then Akai and his dad in The Bride finally meet. And there's a very sad moment where he's like, I can't show you my face. Like, I'm just, I just am this machine now. And then Dr. Baker gives another speech about how, like, you know, the, the, the double standard that women are held to against men. The idea that she's, like, <laughs> it's visualized because they're, the lab is all wired up for augmented reality. When they start arguing, it's visualized as them being held in the scales of justice. And even though he's a giant machine, he's on the upper scale and she's on the lower one. And the, the like, statue of justice is saying she's so shrill. Yeah. Like, the idea that, like, a woman being slightly harsh is viewed so much worse than, like, a man who is now literally a machine of war. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty much, like... 90% of the Twitter fights going on, you know, today. Yeah, and then Akai calls them out, and they were, they're were like, how dare you talk to us like that? <laughs> and, like, the whole time they're having this conversation, the augmented reality is happening, so at one point, they're basically, like, in the set from the Frankenstein movie talking to each other. I said that this art was less daring in the panel structures, but I think they do some really cool stuff with the conceit of this augmented reality in, in like, visualizing these conversations people are having and sort of trying to lend, you know, these sequences that are essentially just three people standing in a broken building arguing with each other with the same sort of kinetic energy as the, uh, you know, the monster blowing up a ship. So as they're having the conversation, she realizes that the director has been beheaded and she's kind of sad about that. And then as they're sort of walking through the destroyed lab, you see this arm punched through and you realize that the monster is still alive. Well, yeah, but we also get, um, they find the head of the director, like, oh, did you say that? Yeah. And there's another flashback where um, Dr. Baker's talking about her childhood and she brings up this idea that, like, her intelligence and her, like, early genius, rather than being viewed as something oppressive, uh, impressive and exciting and that deserves to be nurtured she was treated even more poorly by the system because as a woman and as a black person her intelligence was seen not as a miracle but as a challenge towards the overwhelmingly white male status quo yeah i think that's obvious that she's seen as an intellectual threat to a lot of people. and we sort of this is the, i think like the kind of the last piece of the like tragedy of dr baker as this person who's like incredibly smart who's punished for being smart who finally finds a place where she is validated in the lab and then the second she makes a decision you know for herself i.e to have a child and start a family she's punished again and treated exactly the same way she had been before she was it becomes clear that in the same way that the monster's validation was an illusion her validation in the lab was also an illusion to just get her to do things for them. And the second her value to the lab is in question, she's thrown aside. And I think that's one of the interesting things about Baker and her husband's relationship is that she never knows the sacrifice that he made Mm -hmm. for her to give her what she wanted, which was to allow her to have a family and to continue her research. Yeah. So... I think once that sort of comes out, it changes the way that she feels. But at this point, she's already committed to this path of destruction. 
Yeah, and then she makes her fully heel turn at this point. She starts using the override command to take control of the bride, to take control of Akai. She becomes the thing that she hated. She becomes someone who is like the like I talked about with the police and the government, someone who exerts unilateral control over the lives and bodies of people that she views herself as being above in some way. Well, I think there's a fine line between, you know, being validated and being corrupt. And I think that that's what happens. Like, she gets the power that she needs and it, you know, it corrupts her. And I think that's basically what happens. Yeah, like, this is the part where it is fully, like, she's not, she is a a more thorough realization of the trope, but she's not a subversion or a deconstruction of a mad scientist. She is just a mad scientist. Yes. Uh, literally, she's an angry scientist, too. And so the monster shows up, and they're fighting, and in all this confusion, and her attempts to control people muddy the water, and Akai becomes unsure of himself, and that allows the creation to kill uh, and to destroy uh, Pliers and Dr. Baker. And then finally, Akai has to use his nanobots to literally, like, unweave the creation and in a very sad moment like there's this really cool page where the nanobots are lifting the creation up in the air and just sort of disassembling him the last shot we see the last part of him that's intact is his heart which is also the first part of that akai that we saw intact as he was being rebuilt and he just says goodbye brother yeah and i think that's i mean i feel like there's no other path than for her to be destroyed because her anger has completely engulfed her into, I mean, there's just no other alternative. Yeah. I think that's what, you know, that's what happens. But I think it's kind of sad, too, because now you realize that Akai is on his own. Yeah. And I think that, but until the very end where you realize that she, in her planning, has uploaded her consciousness into the cloud and then into a Kai. So they have this really touching scene at the end where she's trying to motivate him to do things that she thinks are the right things to do and he wants to take a moment out and watch a baseball game. Yeah, and they walk through Chicago and she illuminates all this sort of like unseen history like I was talking about in the beginning of the episode. She sees like this is, you know, a statue of John Baptiste uh, Point du Sable, who's the black man who founded Chicago. Here's Homan Square, the secret detention facility of the Chicago police. You know, uh, here's like all of these things that they don't teach you about that I want you to know about so you can understand. Like she's essentially being like, this is the way the world is so that you can understand why it made me into what I became. And then hopefully with that knowledge, he can be better and he can be, he literally has the power to remake things. So hopefully she's imbued him with the motivation to remake the world in some way and and we have because of what we've seen him do we as the readers have confidence that he'll do it in a kinder gentler way than his mother well i think he's kind of anger and frustration and outrage tempered which i think is the best way to achieve social change sure because i know i mean it, the spark has to be there the anger this sort of you know, frustration with the status quo has to be triggered 
to start the movement of social change. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Akai is taking the best parts of both of his parents and combining them sort of in an intellectual and physical way that will help him. Because it's implied that there's going to be future adventures that Akai is going to do, but on behalf of people who need justice. Sure. Yeah, and it's a, it's a nice ending. It's weird for me because I tend to identify much more strongly with characters like Dr. Baker than I do with characters like Akai. Like, I'm, I, I've got a lot of, you know, rage at the overall social structure and politics of the world. And I, I, I get where he's going from, but I, I have, always have to, like, sort of, like, stop myself and chill out when there is, like, a message that's, like, temper your rage. I'm yeah. like... But I don't wanna. I wanna well, be angry. I think angry. that's what he he Akai is. But that that's the question when we went back, where I said the term destroyer is almost like the term monster in the original yeah. novel because it's like who's the destroyer? Well, I is mean, is it society that destroyed the lives of these people? Is it the lab? Is it her? Is it the bride? Is it the creature? Is it Akai? Is it just? general sort of humanity humanity and this entitlement also i think it's very telling at the end the last image we see of akai he's in a hoodie with the hood up like that's the emblematic that's like the trayvon martin thing yeah um but yeah that's the end of the that's the end of the story what did you think of this overall i thought it was interesting i thought it was like an interesting take on both this sort of story of frankenstein and i thought it was sort of I like the way that they took the sort of comments on society and what was happening currently in society and put it in this story. And I think it was really relevant and well done because I think a lot of what's happening in the story, even though, and also it's reflected in what's happening in society now, but I think it also, it's not quite, it's not a hundred percent negative. Like, there is this sort of spark of, like, a change can happen and, you know, improvements can be made. But I think it really does hold the sort of problems in society that create these kind of incidents. And especially in 2017, it was happening more and more. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of police shootings, high-profile police shootings, that were not sort of resolved in a way that helped the community heal. Sure, yeah. And I think that was sort of, I think that was well done. And it's also kind of a thing where you, it gives you a different point of view. If you're not involved, like if you're not in a, in a community where this is happening, you mm-hmm. may not be able to relate to it. But reading a story like this can give you sort of the insight and open your like eyes to this type of thing happening and how it affects people. Because people see the these high profile cases on like CNN and read about it on Twitter and stuff like that, and a lot of times it's so high profile and so like becomes part of like a conversation that people don't realize that there's like there's a mother who is grieving for her child, there's a police officer who overstepped his bounds, yeah, there are. You know, there are people who are supposed to protect and serve. And, you know, they used to be the term peace officers. Mm -hmm. And those people have been emboldened and have been given this 
impression that they are there to control society and they overstep their bounds. And I think that's really hard for some people to understand and middle class, middle Midwest culture. They don't, you know, Oh, my police officers aren't going to like gun me down Mm -hmm. as I'm walking home from a, a baseball game. But there are people who live every single day of their life in fear that that could happen to them. And that, that's in the United States. That's not in a third world country or in a communist state or in a, like a dictatorship. That's here in our country. And I think a lot of people who won't open their eyes to that and won't realize that are going to have a hard time understanding why a person can be so angry about those kinds of things. Yeah, I think stories like this are really vital because so much of our news reporting is so sort of bloodless and toothless like i think a lot about the phrase officer involved shooting which is maybe one of the most evil linguistic constructions devised in the modern era uh and that just sort of strips out all of the pain all the emotion all of the like fault in these stories and so we need fiction like this to put that all back into perspective and to provide us with the 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 emotional perspective and to really genuinely point the finger at the people who are actually wrong in these situations rather than turning them into these like basically turning police shootings into natural disasters which is what a lot of our purely factual reporting on these events does yeah i think i mean just like the novel This is very relevant because it talks about the societal issues that are happening right now. Yeah. And I think that it's like, you know, it's talking about science and religion and um, violence, but it's also talking about like alienation and this sort of marginalization of people who have every valid right to be outspoken and to be political and to sort of try to energize people into learning more about what's happening in society and how they're often treated. Mm-hmm. And I also, I think what we also need to say is all of this stuff's great. The, no, no, all of this stuff we're talking about is bad. But the the things that, the um, you know, sociologically that this comic is doing are all really good. Uh, but also it's fucking cool. It's like a cool exciting story with like sweet monster fights and a giant robot well i think that's Mm. the beauty of it because uh, if you if he wrote a comic book that was about you know police violence you know and the like the fear of like a generation being raised where they're afraid of you know police and things like that it would be a different type of story but if you can tell it in a way that engages people and still starts that conversation, that's good writing. Yeah. And I think that's what this is. hmm Do you think he should do a, a sequel? Do you think that there's room for a continuation of this story? I think if there's a sequel, most naturally it would be a sequel of Akai having adventures where he helps people that are wrong. Sure. And I think that's going to take it into like a superhero construct. 
But I think as like a capsule, mm-hmm. as like one item that's like a finite story, I think it's more powerful. Yeah, I definitely, I would be interested to see, I would be more interested in seeing him just write another comic that's unrelated to this. But I would still be interested if there is a sequel. They clearly left room for it, but I agree that it definitely doesn't need it. And depending on how the sequel is handled, it could potentially sort of lessen some of the blow of this story, which would be a little bit of a bummer. And I think this, in my mind, this is a story about a mother and her grief and her anger. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think to make a sequel where it becomes, like, something different might not necessarily make it as powerful. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Yeah, do we have anything else to say? Well, I was going to talk about the trend of authors who become comic book writers, but I think you talked about that pretty succinctly in the beginning of the podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it's... I mean, I actually can't think of an example that's really... I guess Brad Meltzer is maybe the one that I, I like the least. He he wrote... He, he has a couple of high-profile DC comics. His Green Arrow stuff was good and cool, and then they kind of handed him the reins of the universe, and he sort of didn't do a great job with it. He went in a very dark direction in with, like, a comp, like Identity Crisis was his big event comic, and then he wrote Justice League, and it's just, like, one's kind of boring. Wait, is this Brad Meltzer, the ones who write, like, the Dan Brown kind of government conspiracy novels? Yeah, he had, like, a show on the History Channel. Okay. He okay. was, like, one of the first high-profile, like, um, novelists into comics writers that I remember, because, like, when I was first started going to the comic shop regularly, it was around the time that Identity Crisis was being publicized. Uh, but I think, like, there's other ones that have worked really well. I, I referenced Tanahasi Coates, and I said, like, maybe there was some hiccups in the style in the early part of his Black Panther run. Uh, not that he's a novelist, but you know, you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his, it got, I don't even think that was necessarily a bad thing, and his run ended up being really good and really interesting. Uh, what are some other examples? Saladin Ahmed has been writing for... Uh, Marvel and his stuff's really good. He's working on the uh, the Miles Morales comic, which you know has I think since Spider Verse really that character has rocketed up in profile, and he's been doing a really great job with that. Yeah, and there, there's a bunch of other ones. I think it's like it feels natural. It's maybe less of a clean transition because comics are very different from writing prose. Uh, but I think like Destroyer right here is a pretty good example of how well it could work out. But it's also, it can feel like a symptom of comics' desperation for validation sometimes. Where it's like, oh, please, Mr. Big Time Writer, come write a comic book for us. And I could see people who are specifically comic book writers who start in the industry and work primarily within the comics industry being kind of frustrated with that trend. But I don't know. I like that. I mean, I like the aesthetics a lot of it. It was very modern. I like the colors. The color palette really, like, lended to the story. Mm-hmm. And I really like the sort of, um, the very detailed backgrounds. I thought the character design was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Very modern. I liked, it kind of really had, like, an animation feel. Sure, I can see know? that. And yeah. It was the same thing with, like, when we talk about Klaus, there were, like, parts of it that sort of looked like they were stills from a movie and I kind of got that impression and I really I think I 
I'm pretty sure that there was a lot of computer um, involvement in this. There was a lot of sort of fading and gradients that I think would have been harder to do by hand. So I think combining sort of modern digital arts with traditional comic work really worked well in this novel. Yeah, I mean, it didn't that's... look kind of like too too industrial, which mm. I think, but I think it looked it had to look a little industrial because it was a lot about technology. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't have that sort of hand drawn feel that something like Sandman had, but it had a more post industrial feel, which I think suited the story a little bit better. Sure, I agree. Yeah. Do you think it was compute some computer oh, yeah. artwork? That, Definitely. That's not basically a given now with the way comics work. I mean, almost all of them are colored on computers, even if they're trying to look more traditional. There's still almost every comic is digitally colored now. But I think there's definitely, I probably some like, I'm almost certain that there were some computer effects at work in the rendering of like the nanobot swarms and stuff, right. which would just be, I can't imagine drawing that by hand that would be a huge pain but i think uh, in my mind using a computer like that is almost like add a special effect like if you were making a movie sure yeah yeah like that kind of like the cloud of nanobots that yeah that way that it was sort of gradiated it was it would have been like you said very complicated to do by hand and i think that really that kind of blend of like hand-drawn and computer added sort of made it seem more like sci-fi yeah i i agree with that so i like that and i think like i mean sci-fi is obsessed with like artificial humans that's like you could talk about that you could talk about that alone for six hours sure just the history of this sort of obsession with replicated humans yeah definitely i mean i liked it i thought it was timely like you said i thought it was culturally relevant I thought that Laval's writing was sort of... He's a good writer. Like you said, he doesn't overwhelm the story with a lot of narrative. And he lets the artwork do some of the heavy lifting, which is Yeah, there's a lot of silent sequences in this, which are nice. Uh, Yeah, and I think it was sort of... I mean, it was sad. I mean, there were parts where it was very sad. And I don't know if, like, as a mother, I related more to some of the parts. And then I... It kind of, the parts where you were meant to be sad, you felt sad. And where you were meant to be angry, you felt angry. And I was sort of really, like, that one part where you said she's so shrill. That kind of, like, insulted, like, me as a woman. And I felt like that outraged me a little bit. And I was like, that's perfect because it's really hitting that emotion that you're supposed to feel. Yeah. And I thought that was really good. Yes, yeah, like I said, I think like the the handling of her character is really well done. I and the like the constant pushing of like are you going to hate her now? Are you going to hate her now? What does that say about you when you decide to hate this person? Is like I I thought that that was my favorite part of the story. Uh can I get a little nerdy for a second? Sure. Did it surprise you in the way that it surprised me that there's no reference to Herbert West? I you know what? I didn't I thought when I saw that visually those tubes and I saw like her rendition of the lab, it made me think of the reanimator. Yeah. It was just like, I know, like the whole, whole story is about reanimating the dead. And I know he's, we, we know that he's uh, thought a lot about Lovecraft. I was kind of waiting for some little nod of like, oh, 
you know, the lab was founded by Herbert West or something. And we never got that. And I don't think it needed that. I don't think it would have added anything. But I was just like, huh. I'm surprised that there, there wasn't that little Easter egg in there. There might have been, and we might not have caught it. Oh, there were a lot of different references. There was a, you know, there was a weird reference to Little House on the Prairie. Which, <laughs> I mean, Josephine Baker, you know, yeah. the, the performance artist from the 1920s or 30s. Uh, Percy and... Yeah, well, yeah. Well, those ones were more obvious because it was like, that's to the... There's a, there's a part where... Um, oh, one of the ways they expose the director as a hypocrite is she has a son. Yeah. But there's a part where she's showing her son that the Rembrandt painting of the, the dudes examining the thief. And she's like, he's like, oh, yeah, like even people that are worthless can be of some value. And it's like another highlighting of her kind of very commonplace but totally grotesque sort of bourgeoisie capitalist ideology. I thought that the reason why the director was mad at baker for having a child was was not because she was a hypocrite in saying that having a child meant you weren't focused on your career yes that but i thought it was almost like she was obsessed with replacing humanity Mm. with robots and nanotechnology and dr baker having a baby kind of proved to her that you can carry on humanity without those enhancements, and she didn't like. That. See, I well, the way I took it was that she was like, as a mother, she understands how a mother feels about her child, and she knows that when she has that kid, she's going to care about the kid more than she cares about her work here, and that's unacceptable to for her. But I mean, if the director is society, she doesn't care about her own children, and that's well, a comment on that. She basically, she, her, her son does get torn apart by the monster with her. Yeah. Like, she does sort of put him directly in danger. All right, so, are we done? Do we have anything else? Is there more in your notes? Are we good? No, I think that's it. What do we got coming up next? All right, so, what is next? What's next month is March, right? Yeah. So, we're going to do, for our novella, we're going to do The Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Carson McCullers. And then for our comic... We're going to do By Chance or Providence by Becky Cloonan, which is a collection of three uh, short stories that she wrote and illustrated. Okay. And then that, I think, will be our last one-shot for a while. So make sure you tune in to the comics episode for March because that will be when we announce our next comic series. Oh, cool. We're going to get back into the flow of doing a a longer multi-volume comic series. But also tune in to that one because uh, that comic's really good. And so I highly recommend it. Becky Clinton's a great artist and uh, she's also a very good writer. Um, to plug our novella, Carson McCullers, who wrote The Salad of the Ballad of the Sad Cafe. The Salad of the Bad Cafe. <laughs> there may be salad in it. I haven't that's, read it for a year. That's my the headline for my Yelp review of the last <laughs> restaurant I went to is The Salad of the Bad Cafe. That might also be the name of the episode. Who knows? Um, it's a really good story. I haven't read that story, but I do. I really like her full-length novel. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she... We talked a lot about one of my favorite books, Geek Love by Kathleen Dunn. Mm-hmm. She is one of the earlier modern writers who celebrates the weirdos. And I cool. think that's kind of... it's. I mean, there's... 
a dwarf in this story. There's like a, you know, there's lots of kind of weird characters and vignettes that she creates. And I think that's where her talent lies. She's considered a Southern Gothic writer. Mm -hmm. So I think like almost like Flannery O'Connor and Eudora Whatley, you start Mm -hmm. to see some of that um, focus on the sort of odd and the disenfranchised. And I think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Bukowski wrote a poem about her. Yeah, well, we'll talk more about about a lot about her, I guess, in the in the next episode. So that should be fun. All right, spoiler alert! Stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.